Hello and welcome to Scanna Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on in AI and what is just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode in which you can get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two AI researchers as to what we think about these news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. We'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our takes. Hello and welcome. This is Daniel Bashir here with Skynet Today's Week in AI. This week, we'll look at accessible AI, learning from small data, and accountability and transparency. While AI-based vision and speech tools can be life-changing for those with disabilities, they aren't built with much data sourced from those people. TechCrunch reports that Microsoft is working with multiple partners to help make those tools reflect the needs and realities of people living with disabilities. For example, one partner notes that gaze tracking technology might not work so well for people with ALS because it hasn't seen them before. That partner in Microsoft will collect face imagery from volunteer users with ALS to integrate the data with Microsoft's existing cognitive services. There is a long way to go before algorithms and AI-based services work well for everyone, but that Microsoft and others are starting the conversation is an important step forward. The previous story highlights that machine learning usually requires many examples of the type of data that you want to apply your algorithms to. Even if you want your AI model to recognize a dog, you need to show it thousands of pictures of dogs, which is computationally expensive. But as the MIT Technology Review reports, a new paper from the University of Waterloo suggests that computers should be able to learn more like humans, being able to recognize something after seeing just a few examples. Computers being able to correctly identify more examples than the number they were trained on would be a large breakthrough and help make the field more inexpensive and accessible. But there's a catch. While the researchers were able to train an algorithm to recognize digits using just 10 images, those images had to be carefully engineered from the 60,000 image MNIST dataset, so as to contain the same amount of information as the original. While the researchers successfully trained a relatively simple machine learning algorithm, engineering data from more complex algorithms like neural networks would be far more difficult. The research is still in early stages, but does hold some promise. Our next story concerns change among tech companies. The partnership on AI was founded in 2016 by a group of big tech companies and has since grown to over 100 member organizations. As VentureBeat reports, some of these organizations are dissatisfied with the partnership's efforts. Axis now resigned from the partnership, saying they felt there was little meaningful change, and that the partnership did not influence or change the attitude of membership companies to ensure that AI systems were used for the common good. Axis now also expressed frustration with the lack of support for a proposed ban on facial recognition and biometric technology that could be used for mass surveillance. The partnership responded by saying that they do engage with tech companies to adjust their behavior, but that the multi-stakeholder process is a long and difficult one, and that they hope to see results over the next year. A representative also commented that the partnership chose not to take a stand on facial recognition because the nonprofit assesses each topic on a case-by-case -case basis to determine where it can have maximum impact. While the partnership may have taken some concrete steps, their methodological focus seems to be on engaging and educating. 
Their purported goals are ones that require concrete action, and four years seems to be quite a long time to start making changes. People who do want to see concrete changes towards using AI for the common good should watch such organizations to hold them accountable. One important way to ensure that AI can be used for the common good is to prioritize transparency and reproducibility in research. According to Science Daily, a number of scientists from different institutions published an article in Nature on October 14th, challenging scientific journals to hold computational researchers to higher standards of transparency. They also encouraged computational researchers to share information necessary to reproduce their work. The authors voiced concern over the lack of transparency and reproducibility in AI research. For example, a Google Health study published in a prominent scientific journal this January claimed an AI system could outperform human radiologists, but upon closer examination, raised concerns. The study lacked sufficient description of the methods used and information that could help reproduce the work. The authors of the Nature article offer a number of frameworks and platforms to ensure safe and effective sharing in order to uphold open science and make AI research more transparent and reproducible. Action taken in response to this call will certainly be beneficial for those who want to use research like Google Health's. That's all for this week's News Roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events with Andre and Sharon. And thank you, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you had the summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a bit of a laid-back discussion about these news stories uh, between two AI researchers. And one of those researchers is me. I am Andre Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. My research focuses mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning. And with me is my co-host... I'm Sharon, a fourth-year PhD student in the machine learning group with working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis as well as to medicine. Hope you're doing well, Sharon. And I think actually before we dive in, I'm curious, uh, we just posted your interview, which you did last week, with some of the authors of the measurement in AI policy paper. I'm curious... From that conversation, what are some of the things you found most interesting? Yeah, something I found really interesting was defining AI. I think as someone who is researching AI, I seldom step back and think about how to define this nebulous space that I am working in. Um, So understanding the fuzzy boundaries around that and how for other other stakeholders like the government or industry, it, it is really important to identify what those boundaries are on the space to determine actual funding numbers and everything. So that that is actually super interesting how important defining something is when it comes to uh, when it comes to different perspectives, of course, like to me, it doesn't really matter as like what you define AI as, because probably what I'm working on is AI. And it's so narrow at this point that it's like so far deep, but uh, it's yeah, and I'm not working on some fuzzy line that would determine some crazy funding number to jump from different orders of magnitude. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I also really enjoyed discussing how to evaluate AI as well as armchair ethics that uh, people do use kind of in the space now more and more. Um, and those are all very interesting and very top of mind for, for me in general in my work and uh, it, it just more broadly. 
Yeah, makes sense. I, I found it quite interesting to listen to myself. Uh, and of course, <laughs> has quite a bit of uh, ideas in there. It's a great conversation. So listeners, if you haven't yet, check out our episode before this one where we have that interview. But now uh, let us uh, do our usual thing of diving into some of these uh, news stories from last week and giving our takes, starting with our first article here titled Microsoft and Partners Aim to Shrink the Data Desert limiting accessible AI. And the quick version, as you've heard, is that Microsoft is uh, launching a project to collect data. Uh, I think in particular here, data from people living with ALS in order to make products and machine learning models that usually don't work as well for these sorts of uh, people, you know, actually, be as good for them as for people without these disabilities or uh, otherwise uh, people needing accessible uh, AI help. So uh, I haven't heard of it before and I haven't heard much about accessible AI in general. So it seems like an interesting thing to kind of get me thinking about the general area of it. How about you, Sharon? What's your uh, reaction to this? I actually worked in the lab before on accessible AI or accessibility in general, not necessarily with AI, just accessibility um, using it in computer science more broadly and using technology to improve accessibility. Um, and that was my undergrad advisor, Krzysztof Gaios at Harvard. And it, it, yeah, it's a really cool space. Um, something that was really striking that I had learned about from him was that a lot of the technology and the user experiences that we use today are actually were actually driven originally by accessible tooling. Um, so just so much of what we use that we feel like, oh, this is really nice and easy to use is actually designed for some some more extreme case and then generalized to to us. And so I think that's pretty cool. And I think that um, I think when I talk to people about accessibility, sometimes people think, oh, I don't want to work on that. I'm not I'm not I don't know. Um, differently abled or something. And I'm like, it doesn't matter actually. Like this is by thinking about a certain type of set of constraints, you actually do give rise to perhaps better technology in general. And I'm pretty sure like voice um, and like Siri and everything started off as more of an accessibility tool. Uh, so, which we more and more of us are depending on uh, and appreciate uh, now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's definitely cool to see these efforts uh, become more common, it looks like. Uh, this article also says that, uh, for instance, there is a project uh, at the City University of London that is expanding and hoping to release the Object Recognition for Blind Image Training Project, where you can have a data set of everyday objects like key rings and things like that, so that you can just use your phone to recognize them. And so for people who have difficulty seeing, the idea there is you can use AI to really enhance their ability to figure out where objects are around them. And to me, it, yeah, as you said, uh, it seems like, well, if you can do that, certainly you can then use this technology for robots because these everyday objects are mm -hmm. things that you would want to interact with. So yeah, all around a good sort of feel-good story seems like, uh, and hopefully we'll see more and more of these positive applications of AI going forward. Yes. So I will say the one little thing that I thought was interesting that maybe makes this seem less good is that 
Uh, it almost also looks like an excuse for Microsoft to be working on facial recognition technology because they said it's for people with ALS or like four differently abled people. And I, I just, I, <laughs> I question a little bit uh, what that means exactly. Um, so I wonder if it is kind of an excuse to work on. I really hope it's not exactly that. And I really hope, um, given folks I do know at Microsoft, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> there is that little caveat there, I will say. Yeah, I guess it could, it, as always, it could go in a bad direction. And actually on that note, uh, we can move on to the next piece that's quite related to that thought, which is Access Now resigns from partnership on AI due to lack of change among tech companies from VentureBeat. So the partnership on AI is this big collection of different uh, entities, so some companies, some civil groups, some nonprofits, aiming to basically steer AI in a good direction. And so, yeah, this is kind of spicy news because Access Now, a nonprofit that uh, is fighting for basically beneficial uses of technology and AI and against surveillance, now resigned saying that the tech companies aren't really on the same plane of wanting to work against, you know, uh, misuses of AI and stuff like that. I wonder, Sharon, do you know much about this partnership on AI and, and does this surprise you at all? I do know much about partnership on AI. Uh, Tara Lyons, who's the, I believe, executive director, uh, was a college classmate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I know her and we were in the same house and everything. So, yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm not super surprised that this happened because I think in general, uh, a lot of, okay, on the one hand, on like for partnership in AI, and, I'm, and I think Tara does mention this, it's that, you know, it takes time to get this many people on board with something. Uh, but on the other hand, I feel like the only way to really make change and that I've seen change is through radically doing something and then having people shift towards that. And like, I've seen climate change efforts go on for decades, just trying to move something slowly, get, you know, Exxon Mobil on board, but really, is it really doing anything? No, it just feels like armchair ethics, armchair climate change and mitigation. So I, I, I really, uh, I think it makes sense for them to pull out and it is sad that they don't see that much change happening. And I hope this organization does access now does, uh, go on to do more radical change more quickly. And I, I generally believe in, uh, I guess, smaller entities doing much more change than large, giant ones uh, that are honestly just for show. Uh, that's my worry. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. I think this is a partnership of a bunch of big companies and organizations and so on. It's hard to move fast and really, you know, drive toward one mission when it's such a big I don't know, uh, collection of groups, right? So even one group doing something is a lot to try and uh, make happen. And here, yeah, it, it's maybe not too surprising that it ended up being very difficult for Access Now to be happy with the pace of progress. But um, personally, I still think Partnership on AI seems like not just PR, like those members actually do want to... Uh, do some meaningful changes and some of those efforts like the shared prosperity initiative are noted in this piece. So 
yeah, I think less of a positive story on the first one, certainly, but uh, at least there is a partnership on AI, right? Right, right. And speaking of perhaps more radical techniques or organizations, uh, a radical new technique lets AI learn with practically no data is the next article in Technology Review. And it's uh, uh, talking about this new paper from the University of Waterloo in Ontario um, that suggests essentially a quite unsupervised approach uh, to representing data uh, at a more global scale and being able to represent, for example, an MNIST data set, which has 60,000 images, all the way down uh, to 10 to five, maybe even to two images. Uh, what what do you think of this work, Andre? I've not actually read the paper. I've uh, just kind of skimmed through the article as well as the abstract. What do you think of what do you think? Yeah, of yeah. I also just skimmed right now. And uh, it's certainly cool. Um, so the, the idea is basically their demonstration is if you look at MNIST, which is collections of numbers, instead of 60,000 collections of handwritten numbers. So sometimes it's hard to recognize this is a five, is it a two, because there's all sorts of way to write them. Instead of having six, uh, 60,000 examples of different ways to write each of the digits, you can compress that down to something like 10 images that distill all the variation. And then you can train a neural net in a particular way to um, yeah, still be able to recognize as well as if you had the full 60,000. So it's a little misleading to say that it lets AI learn with practically no data because you do start off with the 60,000 images. And um, it's, I don't know, fairly questionable or unclear how much this applies to more complex data of relevant digits because... You know, in digits, there is quite a bit of similarities, whereas uh, in ImageNet, there is uh, much more variation between the different classes and so on. But uh, yeah, headline aside, being a little misleading, I think it's very cool. And certainly, uh, we are trending toward massive, massive, massive data sets in NLP and uh and in computer vision. So it seems like if we can compress those data sets in some way while still being able to train to the same level, uh, this could be pretty impactful as my take. I definitely think so. And more generally, I think representation learning is a really interesting area and I'm definitely looking into this. So um, very, very relevant. And I think makes sense uh, for all the models that we are downstream uh, building any type of classifier, for example. All right. Yeah. And then on to a slightly less theoretical, more real world uh, related topic. Our last one here is machine set loose to slaughter with a dangerous rise of military AI from The Guardian. So quite a dramatic title. And essentially, it's a nice overview of the state of robotics in military and in uh, fighting, uh, showing that there's really no uh, regulation so far. And a bunch of companies are working on it and trying to develop kind of militarized AI. Um, I don't think we have time to really go into it. There's a lot of details here. Uh, 
so I'll just give my overall take on the topic, which is that uh, actually it's surprising uh, how much there isn't AI yet in the military. So far as I've seen, there aren't many uses of uh, computer vision or autonomy. It's mostly still human driven with robots that are like remote controlled and drones. But certainly in the next decade or two, that seems like what we'll get is more autonomy and more AI. So now is the time to start thinking about it and seeing these sorts of stories. Do you have any uh, general take on the topic, Sharon? One thing I found kind of interesting about this article was um, they noted that uh, uh, having humans take over can also be a bad thing. Uh, or at least they suggested, you know, uh, hum when controlled by human operators, that then the system would be subject to all the, quote, normal human passions and irrationality. And I thought that was interesting because we often think of these like killer machines, but perhaps the killer instinct might originate from humans. Uh, so I, yeah, I, um, I'm definitely very concerned about this and uh, I have advised companies where I told them I need to step back because I don't feel comfortable uh, being with them if they want to take the direction of uh, working with military in, in this capacity. And I, yeah, I just can't. I personally just don't find it ethical, but um, I know it is being done. Like I'm very aware of this being done. Yeah. Yep. Big area of ethics and AI for sure, especially as we continue to see a lot of progress, although maybe less progress in robotics. So <laughs> might take a while no. for us to really worry. Human operators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And yeah. with that, we can actually close off. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanning Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at scannitoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to Be tune sure in next week. Next.